So we've been walking through 2 Peter chapter 1. He has this great explanation of the incredible reality of our salvation, what has come to us, and the trustworthiness of the written scripture um, as he closes out chapter 1. You get into chapter 2, and there is a change in tone. Peter is dealing with false teachers that had arisen uh, in the mid-AD 60s and were bringing a lot of confusion to these believers. And so Peter originally wrote the first letter, uh, helping them walk through and navigate the waters of persecution. He wrote the second letter to help them navigate the false teaching and the things that were taking place there. One of the main places that the confusion was coming is in regard to the second coming. And so as he closes out this uh, letter in chapter 3, um, he's dealing with the second coming and he's giving us some great principles to be reminded of its certainty and also giving us some insight as to some of the things that they are saying. And so we're going to be there today and I want to uh, just uh, point out a few things uh, by way of introduction this morning before we begin to walk through the text. The second coming was a very vital, important piece of understanding with the first century church. And throughout the 2,000 years that the church has been around, um, there has been sometimes a huge emphasis and talk and focus on the second coming that has built an anticipation and passion and love for the glory of Jesus and a hope that's built because He's coming again. And then there have been times throughout church history where the church has kind of put that on the back burner. They've kind of just not been at the forefront that Jesus is coming again. Not that it hasn't been mentioned, but it just hadn't been one of those things at the front. So let me, let me just give you some insight as to what, what takes place within the New Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. 23 of the 27 specifically mention the second coming of Jesus. Now, one of those four that don't mention is the book of Galatians. But it hints pretty strongly in several places about the second coming. And the three other letters that don't say anything are, are the short letters like Second John and um, a couple others that are dealing with some different things. But 23 of the 27 books mention the second coming of Jesus. And to add to that, there are 260 chapters in the New Testament. There are 300 references in those 260 chapters to the second coming of Jesus. So this was a dominant theme for the first century church. It was dominant in the writing, therefore it was dominant in their teaching, and there was a, a, a big understanding that Jesus was going to come again. It was connected to the Old Testament prophets. They had written not only about the first coming of Jesus, but they had also written about the second coming of Jesus. Jesus came and he talked about with the apostles, that I'm going to come back again. So he had established that with the apostles. And then the apostles began to write as they planted churches and wrote these letters that have come to us in the New Testament. And they were further affirming those great realities. And so I want to just remind us this morning, the second coming of Jesus should be front and center in our lives. We should think about that. And here's the reason why. When it is there, it builds an anticipation in our hearts that is really, really critical. And so let me just deal with this just for a moment. Why? Why does it seem to get lost on the church throughout history? What is the case? And I think in some ways it's lost a little bit of, its, of the power that it should have for us 
even in our day and time. And I think one of the reasons is, is we have been waiting for 2,000 years for him to return. And sometimes, you know how that is in our lives, is there's just this long that wait that is there. It's something that's so far, or it seems to be so far out there, that you just kind of get caught up in your life, and it kind of slips from your mind a little bit. I think a second thing that is important to note is there have just been two there have been far too many false predictions about the second coming of Jesus. And they have all, we said this last week, they have all had one thing in common, and that is they were all wrong. Every single one of them were wrong. He has not returned again, but there are still those who are putting dates and times and, and doing lots of different things. I think a third reason why the second coming is not front and center of our lives is that we don't know God's word. If we really understood that in 260 chapters there are 300 references to the second coming, that should tell us we need to intimately know about this great reality that is coming. And I think this one really dominates the secular world in regard to its view of Christianity. If there is no second coming, then there is no coming judgment. And the, those that, that don't want a coming judgment, they don't want to think about that there's going to be a supernatural return of Jesus coming to earth where he's going to slay his enemies, he's going to establish his kingdom. And so they don't want to think about those things. And so kind of put it out of your mind. And if it's out of your mind, out of your vision, then you don't really have to deal with it. And so, so all of that, I think, has, has contributed to kind of a slipping and in a, in a, in, in having the second coming at the forefront of our lives. So um, there are two words that I'm going to use today um, off and on throughout it, and, and let me just kind of give them. They're going to kind of become the words of the day. And so please use these later on today as well in some conversation that you have. And the first one is catastrophic, and I want to use that um, because Peter's going to, in a sense in the Greek, he's going to use that or the word cataclysmic. I'm smart, some big words, multiple syllables and stuff, and so I want to put those today so Mark Donahoe could learn them and uh, use those later today. Um, cataclysmic and catastrophic. Cataclysmic is a violent event or moment that is mostly unwelcome when you use the word cataclysmic. When you use catastrophic, it's usually involving something that has come sudden and it has brought great damage. And Peter is going to use these words in the Greek, um, particularly about creation, although creation was not an awful thing, it was an incredible thing, but it was cataclysmic in regard to what happened um, in just moments uh, as God spoke. So let's look at the text, Second Peter chapter 3, and I want us to um, look at uh, what we looked at last week all the way down through verse 9, and then we're going to spend our time next week in verse 1 through 10, just kind of um, kind of looking at the text from a little bit different angle. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, following down to, to verse 9. So this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All right. So we're going to look at 5 through 9 today. Uh, and let's, let's begin to walk through that. first thing, thing I want to point out this morning, and they're all S's. I like alliterations. It's kind of how I learn things. And I want to talk about the stupidity of the mockers. Um, the stupidity of the mockers. So look what Peter says there. But they, referring to the false teachers, deliberately overlook this fact. So let me tell you what this phrase deliberately overlooked means. It means it can be translated in the Greek as being willfully ignorant, choosing, watch this, choosing to be stupid. I'm going to choose to believe something that says that I'm not thinking intelligence. I see the facts, I see the reality, but I am making a decision willfully and deliberately to ignore the facts and I'm going to set up my own system and my own belief. Also, the Greeks used this phrase, deliberately overlooked, to, to literally say this, shutting your eyes so that you cannot see the truth. Kind of the idea of, if I close my eyes and I don't see it, then I don't have to believe that it's true, even though it is true. So Peter is saying, these false teachers that were coming along saying, y'all, in the Old Testament, Jesus said it, New Testament apostles, y'all have been saying all along that he's going to come back a second time. He's not coming back. And this delay in him coming back to establish his kingdom communicates and says that he's not going to come back. Well, what they had failed to do is see that throughout history, God had intervened before. And he had done so in some pretty dramatic ways. And so, because of this one thing that hadn't been fulfilled yet, they ignored everything that had happened in the Old Testament and said, well, the promise of His second coming, even though He intervened in the Old Testament in many unique ways, and a couple of them in really big ways, Peter's going to tell us, because the fulfillment of the second coming hasn't come, then it's obviously not true. And so they were using the unfulfilled promise as an attack on God. And watch this again. This was happening within the walls of the church. This was not cultist out there, but this teaching was happening in the church, devastating the church, and causing um, much confusion. Now, let's just talk about this for a moment, and then we're going to look at it in detail. Peter gives three illustrations, two from the past, and then one in regard to the future, to say all of these false teachers who say God doesn't intervene have overlooked some pretty dramatic things. They have covered their eyes and ignored the reality of the world. And the first one he said was this, was creation. The creation was a cataclysmic moment. Watch this. 
<clears throat> this one is one of those things where, as a kid, I used to, even before I was a believer, I used to try to solve this because, you know, I was so smart. Before there was a heavens, before there was an earth, before there was a throne room, before there was anything, there was God the Father, one God, God the Father, Revealed himself in three persons, God the Son and God the Spirit before anything ever was. Well, where were they? Well, they weren't anywhere because nothing had been created yet. They existed. God existed. But then in a moment, God decided to create and he spoke. And when he spoke, things that weren't there all of a sudden were there. And then he spoke again and things that weren't there all of a sudden were there. The earth, Genesis 1-2 tells us, was there was this water, this watery thing that was there. It was in the heavens. It was, um, it was there. And there was a substance inside. And then God spoke, and, and he began to create, and he began to give form. Interesting, if you look at the six days of creation, the first three days of creation, God is giving shape and form to the universe and the earth. In the next three days of creation, he is filling what he has given form to with vegetation and animals and mankind. And, and the beauty of what he does in those six days is absolutely amazing. So all of this teaching was going on that he's not coming back. That's a supernatural event. The world is just going to continue going on. And Peter says all of these people who are proclaiming this, they have ignored two great realities. God stepped in and created. And then not only that, you come to Noah's generation, and God stepped in again, and He used water in, the, in creation, and He used water again in the flood to bring about a judgment, to step in to, and to do something about it. And then Peter says, there's a third one that's coming, and God's not going to use, use water with the third one. God's going to use fire, and He's going to bring about a permanence um, in regard to this earth. And so Peter is saying, listen, all of these false teachers who are saying he's not going to come back because they're saying he's not going to intervene. He's not, if he was going to intervene, why wouldn't he intervene? Look how awful Rome is. Look what Rome's doing. Why would God not want to step in in the midst of, of the evil um, uh, reality of Rome? And so they just said this. They said, okay, well, he said he was going to come back. Look at the world. He's not coming back. He hasn't come back, so therefore he's not going to come back. And so Peter says, they deliberately say he's not going to step in. And Peter says, oh yeah, he's going to step in. As a matter of fact, he has stepped in. And glory to his name, one of the great, Peter doesn't list it here, although he's been talking about it indirectly. One of the greatest interventions in the history of the world was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God came here. He came here. He entered this world and he shook it up and he turned it upside down, calling people to faith and repentance and a relationship with him. So God, Peter says, God has stepped in. So these who deliberately overlook and say that he's not going to step in again are deliberately forgetting that God has stepped in in the past. And so let's look now at these specific interventions um, that Peter lists here. So look again with me in verse 5. For they, speaking of the false teachers, deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So the mocker's first error was to recognize, it was a failure to recognize the work of God in creation. And again, things that were immensely large and beautiful that were not present were suddenly, as God began to speak, were suddenly present. And the false teachers knew about all of the teaching connected to creation. 
But because it dealt with God and because it dealt with the supernatural, they didn't want to talk about that. Because if you deal with the supernatural, then you have to be accountable about things because you have to give an answer to the one who has created things. And so the, the universe was ordered by God, and it was ordered perfectly. Now I want you to keep your finger in chapter 3, and I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1, and I want us to look at this phrase that Peter uses here because we get the detail of that in Genesis chapter 1 in regard to the intervention of God with water in creation. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now look at 6 through in the next few verses. This is what Peter's referencing here. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. So you've got these waters. Genesis 1 tells us up there above. You've got, you got this water. The earth was without form. So here you go. So God says, so he says, and le- um, here, uh, where am I? Yeah, verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. So watch. So you got waters, lots of waters. The earth was out form. It was there. So there was a separation now, waters from waters. So there was a separation that begins to happen and take place. And verse 7 says this, And God made the expanse, and He separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Look at 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And this word here is what we call cosmos. It's used and it's, there was an order to the creation. So watch what happens. Water, earth was in the midst of that, the substance, God separates the waters, and then the waters that were under the heavens, God lifts up this expanse that's there, and you have what's called dry land, it's earth, and as he lifted up, the waters moved to places, there were rivers created, there were seas and oceans that were created as God created that, and so Peter is saying, listen, in the very beginning, Before anything ever was, God stepped in and God created, and He created out of water, through water, what you and I know in regard to earth, where we live, this creation, and all of these things. And so He's saying to them, all of these false teachers who are saying, y'all have been saying He's coming back. It's called uniformitarianism, and it's this idea of things have always begun this way things are just going to continue this way they're going to continue this way they're going to be that way they're going to continue to be that way and it's going to go on and on and they have an issue with our faith where it says this that as the world is moving forward God is Jesus is going to step in another time and this next time he's not going to step in with water 
He's going to step in with fire, and he's going to bring a judgment, and he's going to bring such a powerful judgment that there will be no earth that you and I see today that was originally birthed and brought out of water and through water. It will no longer exist. And so the evolutionists, secular historians, all of those people say it's just going to continue on. And so they don't want there to be a supernatural intervention of God because here's what that means. There's a judgment that's coming. You have to, if he intervenes, then you've got to face the one who intervenes. And so if I just don't think about it, I just cover my ears, I don't want to see it, I don't want to read about it, doesn't mean that it's not going to come true. And so he's going to intervene. Is our things right now kind of continuing? Yes, they are going to continue. But Peter's making the point, God has intervened before, and he did so in creation. Now, I am not, um, my dad was a science teacher. My poor father, bless his soul. Um, he had a first son that didn't like science very well and didn't have a science mind. I just, I just, I, I think science is really cool. It's fascinating. I just... I have a simple little brain, okay? So y'all, I just, I just, uh, you know, I, uh, anyway, y'all just pray for me. Anyway, okay, so, so I didn't do well. My dad was a science teacher. He would try to tutor me at home. I'd go and have my science tests and make a 71 and barely pass. And uh, that just was kind of my science history in school. <clears throat> but I want to say some of you are really, really smart. And you're way smarter than me, and I affirm that you're really smarter than me. But I want to I deal with something that I think is important. I believe that it's God himself who reveals the origin and nature of the universe, and I think we see that in Genesis chapter 1, that it, and it was revealed in his speaking. And I think it's revealed in Scripture, even though I think creation is awesome. I've been all over the world, and I think creation's incredible. We want to trust what God has said more than what we see in creation. We don't want to make science the God. We want God to be the God. Now, God's the creator of science, right? He's the creator of science. He is. And so, so he's revealed unbelievable things now in 2019 that we can learn through science that God has given us that, that cause us to go, gosh, God, you're amazing. And so science, the purpose of science is to give glory to God as, as everything is. What's the purpose of English? What's the purpose of Russian language? What's the purpose of Spanish? It is to give glory. Everything is to give glory to God. But I think this is really important. I believe the word of God's explanation of things takes precedent always, even over the scientific study of the universe. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to learn, um, but, it, the, but our study of that is not to negate what is told and taught to us and revealed to us in the Scripture. And here's why. The Word of God will stand forever, not creation. So creation doesn't take precedent over the Word of God. And again, the creation came from God's heart, came from God's infinite sovereign mind, its creativity, its beautiful, but it was here to give glory to who He is. Listen to this verse. Psalm 33, 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Listen to this. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Old Testament saints, this, this was their worldview. 
God intervened into the world. He spoke. It came into existence. He commanded nature and creation to be this way. And creation said, I'm with you, God. I stand firm in the way that I have been created. And then Genesis 3 happened. And Romans 8 tells us, what is creation doing right now? What is it doing? It's groaning. Why? Because when sin entered the world, God, it was thrown into chaos. And creation is groaning, just like our bodies are groaning, saying, get this fixed. Something is wrong. Something is not right. And so Peter is making this illustration. He's saying these false teachers who say God's not going to intervene. God intervened in the very beginning. He created this thing. And not only that, that as things went along, you get to Noah's generation and you couldn't find anybody but Noah's family on the earth that was godly. And so what God did is God came to Noah and he spoke to Noah because that's what God does. He's a speaking God. He spoke to Noah and he said, Noah, I'm going to flood the earth with water. And so Peter's giving a second picture of God intervening in the world with water. First, it was creation out of water through water. Next was Noah's generation. So he comes to Noah and says, hey, I want you to build an ark. It took Noah 120 years to build the ark. As he built, he preached. He built, he preached to his generation. By the way, an apostate generation, like the apostate generation that Peter is writing to, who is rebelling against God. And so Noah spoke to his apostate, rebellious, turning away from the truth of God because all of those people had known God, that these people that were on the earth in Noah's generation had known God at one particular time. And now they had turned their back on all of that. And they didn't want to believe Noah. They wanted to embrace their own lusts and their own stuff. And so, so they're living that way. And so eight people are saved But Peter's point is this, God intervened in Noah's generation. And so God created with water, and then God destroyed with water. And we probably likely will talk a little bit more about that next week because it's incredibly fascinating, even for this person who doesn't have a science brain. It's amazing what God did with water. And I think the imagery from Genesis 1 all the way through the Bible and the creation and the the life-sustaining reality of water. We can live for a while without food, but what happens if we don't get water? We don't last long. And so there's this beauty. That's why Jesus, he he is that. That's why in John chapter 7, he stood up on the last and greatest day of the feast and he said, come to me and do what? Drink. And if you'll drink of me, From within you, streams of living water will flow. Rivers, rivers of water will flow. Not a river, but rivers will flow within you. So Peter says, let me answer answer the question of you who are mocking Christians and and mocking the teaching of the apostles. You who say, um, y'all have been saying he's going to come for ever since the fathers fell asleep. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so Peter answers, oh yeah? They overlook one fact, that the earth was formed out of water and through water, and the heavens existed long ago. It was done by God. And then that same, through the same thing of these, the word and the water, the earth that then existed was deluged and was destroyed. And then he uses a third illustration, and he says this, God in the future is not going to use water again. God's going to use fire. By the way, let's just talk about the rainbow for a second. I don't know about you, I'm still a kid about rainbows. A week ago, Monday night, 
It rained for a minute out here, and we had rainbows out here. We had a little double rainbow, and we were out there, you know, taking pictures. It was amazing just looking at it. What does the rainbow tell us God's not going to do? He's not going to destroy the earth by water, right? So the, rema- the rainbow is not only a word that says he's not going to destroy the earth by water, but I think the rainbow also is a communication to us as believers that God's going to do something different in the future because the scripture gives us explanation as to what God's going to do. So he's going to bring, thirdly, a final judgment by fire under this point of the specific intervention of God. And so in the future, God is going to intervene again, and it's going to be different than the first two interventions that Peter uses um, by way of illustration, and he will do so by fire. This, this phrase here in verse 7 that says, kept unto being kept until the day of judgment. Kept is something, it means the word reserved for a fixed purpose in the future. And God keeps all of his reservations. Every single one of them, he does. So let me just give you um, a few other passages. Let me give you a couple in the Old Testament and a couple in the New Testament about this final judgment by fire. This is Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Malachi 4, 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, and so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. John the Baptist said this in Matthew 4, 12. His winning, winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Paul had to write a second letter to the church in Thessalonica uh, because of the confusion about the rapture and the second coming of Jesus. And he wrote these words in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire he will be revealed, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not o- obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So, Peter says, listen, there's, there's a stupidity of these false teachers who say God's not going to intervene in the world. And Peter says, well, he has. <laughs> he has. He did so in creation. He did so in the flood. And he's going to do so in the future, but not with water. He will do so with fire. Now, thirdly, this morning, I just want to briefly point this out. And I want to talk about the sovereign work of God's word. The sovereign work of his word. And it's all through 5 through 7. Read, go back, if you're there, hopefully you're there. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, 5 through 7. I want to, let's just read it again. I want to stress the emphasis of all three of these illustrations connected to the Word of God. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water. How was it done that? By the Word of God. Verse 6. And that by means of these, what means, that's plural, It's the water and the word, and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water. So in creation, God used his word. In the flood, God used his word. In the future, verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So watch. God's word is absolutely powerful. 
That's why I call us to think on it, memorize it, get it in our mind, walk in it so that wisdom comes. Because think about this for a moment. Can anybody in the room, and if you raise your hand, we're going to take you to the Looney Tune barn today, okay? Can anybody in this room create something out of nothing today? Anybody? Can anybody in the room? Lindsay, can you? Okay. Anybody? Watch. God didn't do anything out of nothing He created. And how did He do that? He spoke. Spoke. He just said words. And so watch how powerful God is. God didn't have to go get something. He just said, let it be this. Let there be light. Let this happen. Let this happen. Let this happen. Over and over in Genesis 1, God is the one who allows the creation to move forward. He defines it, the creation, how creation works. We talked about that last week. And so God does this. And so Peter says, listen, I want to remind you, church, of the sovereign power of God's word. He created out of nothing. And this importance about believing that God created by his word is in Hebrews chapter 11. We love Hebrews 11. And we love talking about all of those people who had great faith. But listen to Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And I think it's no surprise that evolutionary thought and all of these things are there because it goes to attack that God had the power to speak creation into existence. Because our faith believes, I wasn't there, anybody there? The youth this week talked about how old I was, um, what it was like to meet Abraham Lincoln and other people like that, and I don't know what it was like, I never met them, but... Um, I wasn't there at creation. I don't think anybody was here in, at creation. So, so I, I, I wasn't there, but I believe what the Scripture has to say about creation. I believe it. I believe by faith that our God is so sovereign and almighty and omnipotent. And His Word is so powerful that He could say, let there be water, let there be this, let there be this. And I think that out of nothing, it came. And so Peter's reminding us, Listen, the flood came, creation came, and the second coming as well is going to come and be ushered in by the Word of God. So the Word of God created everything. The Word of God holds all things together. The Word of God caused the flood, and the Word of God will one day bring the second judgment of Jesus. I want to briefly touch on this fourthly this morning. I want to talk about the suddenness of God. I believe the creation happened in six days and i believe it happened six days because exodus 20 tells us it happened in six days i think there are other places genesis 1 tells us it happened in six days and i know that we could have lots of debates today about okay what does a day mean and blah 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 and all that kind of stuff and we'll talk a little bit that about in a second but i believe it happened in six days i think our god's big enough and i think on the seventh day he rested i think he flooded the whole earth in 40 days Scripture tells us that in, in Genesis there, in 6 through 8, that thing that water came from above and water came from below. And when God separated, there was water under the earth and there was water above the earth, this expanse of water. And I think it came and I think it deluged the whole earth. I don't think it was a regional flood. I think it was a worldwide flood. And it completely wiped out. And I think eight people survived it, plus the animals that were there. He did that in 40 days. And yet he gave that generation 120, day, 120 years to repent. 
And he's going to return again in Revelation. And when he comes again, um, he's going to destroy the earth. And I believe it will be done um, at the end of the millennial kingdom. It will be done by fire and it will be done quickly. It will be quick. So there's a suddenness of God. And yet there is an unbelievable patience of God. And that's how I'd like to close our time today. I want to talk about the supposed slowness of God. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. But do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter now reminds these readers that God has not forgotten about His plan to bring Jesus back, even though it seems like maybe He's forgotten. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Okay, when's it going to come? Now it's been 2,000 years, it's been 200 centuries. When is He going to come back? And He wants these Christ followers, and I think He wants us in our day and time, because it has been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended, and we've been talking about His coming. He wants to remind us that the perceived delay of God is not delayed. Let me bring us back to Kiddom. The wheels on the bus go round and round, and God's wheels on His bus go, from our perspective, very slow. God, come on, press the gas pedal. Can we, can we speed this up? And the problem with time is our issue. It's not God's issue. God is, is eternal right now, and He's so eternal right now that He's eternal in the past, He's eternal in the present, and he's internal in the future. Wrap your head around that reality. Now let me make sure this is clear. When Peter says here, some, some people have, I think, falsely interpreted this. He's not saying one, one, one day is like a thousand years to God. He's saying it's as. He's just trying to say, listen, God doesn't operate like you and I do. So it's not, okay, we can figure out when he's coming based on a day and a thousand months. That, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's as. He's just trying to, he's trying to help people who live in time try to understand that God doesn't operate in time. He doesn't operate under calendars like you and I do. And so while the wheels on God's bus in the fulfillment of the promise of the second coming go round slowly, and it seems like we're not getting anywhere, I want to remind you and I of this. God operates His timetable through the process of redemption. And he's got redemption in mind always. So why has Jesus not come back? Well, he wants more people to come into the kingdom. The delay is so that more people can come to faith and come into the kingdom. And so he tells the believers here, don't, even though it's been a while, again, they are living in the generation that Jesus was alive on the earth, and they're thinking, he's coming back in our generation. Now you and I are here, 2,000 years after they were expecting Jesus to come back in their lifetime, and we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And Peter is saying, don't get caught up in time. Be, remember that God is beyond, and he's outside of time. He's not confined to that. God does Whatever God does, and it's not grounded in what the kingdoms of this earth do, God knows exactly what God is doing. And I think, tragically, for many Christ followers, um, they have forgotten about the nature of God and how God works, and it has slipped out of their minds. And our thinking about Him sometimes becomes so small. 
But it's why there's not a passion in our worship. There's not a passion to walk in obedience because he's not a big, grand, great God. And it's, and it's not because he's not. It's because we don't see him as who he is. So why do we forget so easily? I think one reason is simply this. We never really learned the principles in the first place. And if you don't know them, you don't walk in them. So they're not there. And so it's just easy to be gone. And I think another thing is what I've been talking about in these weeks that's really important. Too many believers live their faith by emotion. And when God redeemed us, He redeemed our heart, He redeemed our emotions, He redeemed our mind. And over and over in the Scripture, it speaks about know this, know God, know God, know God, know God. And our mind needs to be intimately connected with knowing true facts. Notice what he said, but they overlooked this fact, and now Peter says to the believers, don't overlook this fact. We are to know factual things, true things that are connected to the Scripture. And if we're not careful, our whole evaluation of our faith is connected to how we feel today. When it should be connected on what God has said factually, and we just trust it, whether our emotions are deeply connected with it or not. And so the supposed slowness of God is not slow. And let me point out some things here that I think are amazing. He is not confined to time. And again, he's making an analogy here, not a literal equation, um, but let's just say maybe it's close to being the truth, that a day is like a thousand, a day to God in our time is like a thousand years to us. Peter's quoting Psalm 90. Moses wrote Psalm 90. This is what Psalm 90 3 and 4 say, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. There is a huge gap between our perspective of time and God's. We've seen it in our lifetime. Got five kids. Every one of them were this way when they were younger. Hey, your birthday is one month from now. The next day, what's the question? Is it my birthday today? No, it's not your birthday. It's 29 days from now. A couple of days go by. Hey, is it is my birthday today? No, it's about 25 more days. It'll be your birthday. And you do that for about 30 days. Why? Because kids don't, they don't grasp time. Or, the great one, grew up Waco, Texas. Grandparents lived in Amarillo. We're going to go see grandparents in Amarillo. It's eight hours, 30 minutes into the ride. What question am I asking? Are we there yet? No concept of time. And watch this, Christians. I think this is what we do with God. We're just like kids because we have to live in time where we're like, okay, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? Are we there yet? And we're just like an impatient kid on a trip, and we just have to wait and watch. He's going to get us there. Do you think he's asking any of us to get us there? <laughs> oh, let's hope not. I know some of you, and we don't want you getting us there. Okay? That's a joke. Some of you could have laughed more, okay? We want him to get us there. So we don't want him, watch, we don't want him operating in our time and schedule. We want him beyond our time. We want him beyond our calendars and our events and our perspective we want the one that isaiah said your thoughts are higher your ways are higher paul wrote about who can comprehend this incomprehensible 
God, and there are limitations to our understanding of time. And sometimes you can look at our lives, you can look at people of the Old Testament, and boy, God delayed some time, didn't he? All of those 12 sons that went down there to Egypt, 400 years he let them wait and become slaves. Joseph at age 17 was told, your brother's going to come bow down to you. Did that happen immediately? No, it happened through a long time, sold in slavery, falsely accused, put in prison before he got there. Malachi ends his writing, watch, 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and God was not speaking. That's a long time. Silence. Silence. And then Paul gives explanation of that in Galatians 4.4, at the right hand, at just the right time. God sent his son. You think they weren't in that 400 years of silence saying, would you bring the Messiah already? Bring him, bring him. And we have to trust God is operating in a way that we can trust. Now let me give an illustration before we wind this down. Some of us have people in our lives that we are longing for them to get their heart right with God. Maybe they know the Lord, they've drifted, or maybe they don't know the Lord. <clears throat> Maybe there's a sickness. There's a sickness that's unto death. I mean, it's just, it's a sickness. And, and looking at the sickness and, and it's there, you wonder, is there any hope with this? I want to give you some encouragement, but I want to make sure it's a balanced encouragement. If there's anybody in your life that you're longing for them to come into salvation, or there's anybody in your life that you know has made a decision, but they've kind of walked away from the Lord and they were living in rebellion, if they are going to come to faith in Christ, I want you to know this, that God's already there the day that they are going to come to faith in Christ 12 years down the road. If there's a sickness that's unto death today, God's there right now. When that death comes or when that continuing on at life happens, God's going to be present. He's going to be with those people, and he's already there. And when you think about the implications of that, now not everybody's going to choose Jesus. Not everybody who doesn't know the Lord and we're longing in the days ahead that they're going to know the Lord. God's already there and, and they may continue for the rest of their life to say no to Jesus. That may be the reality. And they're never going to come to faith in Christ. But God's going to be with them all the, all the while calling them to himself. There's going to be other Christians speaking into their lives. But I think for us it gives this great reality. Watch this. For some of those people, they're going to repent. And God's already there, and He wants to say to you and I in the room this morning, will you just trust me that I'm already there, and I can do there what you can't do because I'm there. And your worry today, in time, in your calendar, in your agenda, and your selfish desires, I want you to trust me that I'm there, and what I do there can be trustworthy because I'm altogether good. And so he's not confined to that. And I think for us, it just says to us what Peter's saying. God is not slow. He's not slow. He's not. This word slow here, he says, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises. Some think of slowness. He's not that. This word slow means to hesitate, linger, or delay. God's not, God's not indifferent. But the delay has a purpose that is connected with it. And so, so I want to remind you and I, 
we, we cannot cast slowness to God and say, gosh, if you were so loving, wouldn't you do something right now? We need to be really careful with that kind of arrogant talk toward an omnipotent God to tell him what he ought to do right now. We need to get to a place where to say this, God, I'm longing for you to do this. I'm praying for you to do this now, but I want to, as I pray this, I want to say that I trust you because I know that you're already down the road, not confined to time. You're at a place where you're going to bring about the fulfillment of your purpose and your plan. So Peter says he's not slow and he is faithful to fulfill his promise. Here's what they were saying. They were using the Lord's patience, which was giving them time to repent as an accusation against him, making the promise of his coming somehow invalid. And in their arrogance, they made the assumption that since God was not functioning in line with their timetable, that they could somehow sit in some kind of judgment on him that he was doing something wrong. And I'll tell you this. Um, I don't fully understand everything connected to God's timetable. I don't, and I just have to yield and trust that great reality. I just spent a week with a bunch of teenagers doing construction. This body right here looks pretty good this morning, but it is really tired. And it's Father's Day, and I want to take a nap today. Now, that's my plan for the future. That's my plan for the future is I want to watch some of the U.S. Open and I want to fall asleep during the U.S. Open and then I usually wake up um, about the 17th or 18th hole. And so that's my plan today. But you know what? I don't know if that's my future. I, I don't know if that's my future even though that's just a couple of hours down the road. And so I want to remind you tonight today, God is faithful to fulfill His promise and while we may not understand the Lord's ways or God's timing, we are never to sit in judgment over what we perceive to be a delay in His coming and say that His timing is wrong. So not only those things, but He is also says that He is patient toward believers. If you know Him today, do you know why you know Him? Because He has delayed His coming. And he has been patient in our rebellion to allow us to come into faith to know him. How glorious is that, that he's been so patient to you and I. And so Peter tells him, listen, he is patient toward you. This word toward means in direction of you. He is patient towards you. And, and, he, and he has allowed you and I in his patience to come into the kingdom. And I believe the delay of God's timing is beautiful because we know Him because He has delayed it. And then look at the fourth part of verse 9. He says, And not wishing that any should perish. Now some people have seen and used this phrase here as some kind of statement that God is eventually going to allow everyone into heaven and all are going to be saved. And that is not what this teaches. There's not something that's called universal salvation it's not taught in the bible anywhere it's not even hinted at this is a twisting of this and if you and i have ever wondered why god has delayed his judgment on the world we just only have to see that if he had returned before you and i had come to salvation or our family then we would be forever lost and we pray your kingdom come but we leave the timing of that coming of his kingdom in god's hands 
Now let's deal with this just for a second because you're going to start to have some questions pop up into your head. There's something called the doctrine of election, and then there are those who say there is um, that we do the choosing. There are those who say God does the choosing, and you look at this text and you go, "How in the world do we reckon all these recognize all these things? If God has done the choosing, and God decides who goes, who doesn't go, then why is God wishing that that not any would perish? Why does God want all people to come into the kingdom?" And so I want to talk about that just for a moment because I think it would be, I would be amiss today to not talk about those things and uh, speak into that. I want you to listen. So Peter is saying here, he's not, God is not wishing that any should perish. Any is how many? Any, right? No one, right? This includes everyone. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is pleasing to Jesus who desires all to be saved. This word wishing, willing, desiring um, expresses a strong desire on God's part. And let me deal with these, these questions for a moment. Not everybody's going to come to faith in Christ. But this is not because God has not desired it and God doesn't have the power to bring it about. This carries the idea that God has a d- d- deliberate idea and in, in aim that people would come to faith in him. First John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation. He is the satisfying sacrifice, the appeasement of the wrath of God for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And then Peter says, but that all should reach repentance. Repentance is a change of lifestyle. It's not, okay, I say some words and I just live however I want, but repentance says I'm going to change So God is desiring, he doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to reach repentance. This word reach, incidentally in the Greek, means have room for. So Peter's saying God has room for people to enter the kingdom. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And God is waiting to send Jesus because there's a full redemptive purpose and focus. And with each day, this is an extension of the mercy of God, grace of God for people to come in. So let me deal with this. I know I've been saying I'm going to deal with this. I'm just hanging you in the balance, okay? Church has been debating this and talking about this subject matter for a long time. And by the way, we're not going to solve it today. God can't be waiting for all people to be saved but I believe he is waiting for all those who are his to come into the kingdom. So let's deal with this. How do we reconcile that we choose God chooses? Well, let me, deal, let me just say this. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Can we be in agreement with that? Zero. Zero contradictions in the Bible. So does God choose in election. Well, absolutely, it's in the Bible. There were names written in the Lamps of Goliath before the foundation of the world. And, and then some would say, well, God knew. Well, of course, God knows, but that would be God's providence. And that word's not used in those places about election. It says God cho- chose. Well, what about the texts that say we choose? 
Well, can I tell you this morning? They're both true. I believe God chooses, and then I believe God enables us to choose, and I can't reconcile them. And for 2,000 years, do you know what the church has not been able to fully do? Fully? They're just, watch, they're both true. And we have to learn to live with the tension. So does God choose? Yeah. Does God not want any to perish and all to come to repentance? Yeah. Are all going to come to repentance? No. But I think God desires that reality. I think there's opportunity for people to enter into the kingdom. And yet at the same time, I think the Bible teaches God chooses an election. I think it's there. And what we have to do, as with all things, when we can't reconcile it, we have to trust that it's true and we have to live with the tension. Listen to me and be okay with it. And just be okay with it. And what we do is simply this. People can't enter the kingdom unless they know Jesus. So what do we do? We proclaim Jesus. God does the saving anyway. We don't get to do the saving. We don't save ourselves. Why? I'm the one who did my salvation. No, we didn't do our salvation. Because if we did, then it's our work and we point to us. So I think God even enables us to have the faith. But I do believe what Peter and Paul say here. That God is desiring something that can be true. People can enter the kingdom. And so we pray for people to enter the kingdom. And I believe that God chooses and brings people that are His into the kingdom. And I think that they're both true. And we trust in that reality. And so God does that. And so if you want to email me this afternoon about that point, just do so after my nap. You can email me about 6 tonight, okay? And I'll try to answer you. But um, I'd love to talk about these things. And again, the church has been talking about this, James Roberts, for 2,000 years, correct? Yeah? Other people who like doctrine and theology, the church has been doing this. And so, so they're both true. But don't miss the point. God wants you to enter the kingdom. He sent His Son to die for your, the propitiation the satisfactory work, not just for your sins, but for the sins of the world. That's why we go locally. It's why we go globally. We want people to know. We want people to know. And, let, and we proclaim, and God, God does the saving. How it all works is God does it. He does it. We don't. He does it. And so we trust His great work in that. All right. Isn't that great teaching? Such great, great teaching writing from Peter. Such great truth for us that gives us hope today. All right, let's pray.